case, if you didn't know the man who lies at the centre of this storm-stilling story. The man, you remember, who rested while other passengers panicked. Of Jewish ethnicity, he remains today one of the most famous Jews in history. His name starts with the letter J. And when I tell you that his name is five letters long, I'm sure it gives him away. Of course, I'm speaking of Jonah. The man at the heart of the great storm-stilling incident in the Old Testament. Sent to preach to one of the great cities of the ancient world, Jonah decides to break God's command. Finding the nearest boat, he buys a one-way ticket in the opposite direction to Nineveh and God's will. He finds a place to lie down and sleep. And we can imagine, perhaps with some self-congratulation, he pats himself on the back, thinking he has managed to outwit God. But Jonah is about to learn lesson one in running from God. You can't. Not by land, not by sea. And God, who made the sea, sends a storm on the sea, and the boat carrying Jonah is in jeopardy. The sleeping Jonah doesn't even know it. The crew wake him from his sleep, and now aware of his situation, he confesses, I'm to blame. God has sent this storm for me. Throw me over the side, he says. And seeing it as the only option, his crew, with some reluctance, oblige. They watch Jonah sink beneath the angry waves. They thought to his death. And in moments, they witness something absolutely incredible. The hard rain stops. The wind falls silent. The boat ceases to rock back and forth. And in a moment, it's calm. The lesson. God controls nature. Not men. Not sailors. Not Jonah. God. He can send a storm and only he can still a storm. No wonder the surprise of Jesus' disciples. Hundreds of years after Jonah, we come to the other famous storm-stilling incident in the Bible. Not the Old, but the New Testament. Another storm, another terrified crew, and ironically, another sleeping man. This time not Jonah, but Jesus. And yet, unlike Jonah, the waking Jesus turns to the wind and speaks to the storm. Peace, be still. And to the disciples' amazement, the storm complies. No wonder they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. And it's this question, who is Jesus? The disciples question 
that we want to explore this morning as we continue the next in our series in Mark, looking at Jesus, the master of the storm. It would help if you have an open Bible. All that will be said will be taken from the Bible, Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. It's page 1006 in the Pew Bibles. It seems strange to begin at the end of a day. But that's where our story begins. As Mark records, that day when evening came. Now, what day was that? Well, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that Peter took us through some of the particularities of this day. It was a day in which, primarily, Jesus was teaching the crowd. You remember that he spoke to the crowd using parables. And we can imagine that after this teaching session, Jesus might have been quite tired. Some of you, I know, are teachers by profession. If you're a teacher, then you can empathize with Jesus, and Jesus can empathize with you. It can be quite a draining exercise. Well, imagine teaching literally thousands of people for an all-day lecture. That's what Jesus had just done. And so we can understand that as evening draws in, Jesus seeks some rest from his activity. He gets his disciples together and lets them in on his plan. As firstly we see Jesus and his disciples escaping the crowd. Bringing the disciples together, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Now, let's think about where Jesus is at this point. If we go back to the beginning of Mark chapter 4 and verse 1, to the start of this day, we see that Jesus was teaching down by the lake. Now, this lake is Lake Galilee, sometimes called by different names in the Bible, Kinneris, Gennesaret, the Sea of Tiberias, sometimes just the lake as here. All the same place. Lake Galilee, the largest freshwater lake in Israel. Twelve miles in length, eight miles wide. And Jesus wants to go from the western shore, where he's been teaching the people, to the eastern side. Now this was a reasonable request that Jesus was making. For one thing, Jesus was already sitting in a boat. There was a boat at hand. In fact, when it says in the next verse that they took him along just as he was, it probably means that they set out without Jesus having to even get out the boat. Consider too that Jesus also had an experienced crew. You know that a number of Jesus' disciples were fishermen by trade before they were called. And more than that, this was the lake on which they used to do business. They must have made this journey Many times, they knew this lake like the back of their hand. And perhaps most importantly, notice that it was Jesus himself who made this request. It was not the disciples' idea. They did not say to Jesus, he said to them. He commanded it. Indeed, if we read it closely, he promised it. Now, we know what comes next. 
isn't it interesting then that sometimes, as here, God allows us, he permits us to face difficulties. There is no promised exemption for the follower of Jesus from facing trials this side of glory. Indeed, it's often God's plan to use our difficulties to increase our faith. You remember the Apostle Paul, one of the most faithful men of God after he was converted? You know, he was shipwrecked on four occasions. Four times. God didn't keep him from these struggles. Or you remember Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he writes in later years to suffering Christians and he says to them, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Struggles are not strange for the Christian. They are normal faith-building opportunities that God, by his grace, allows us to go through. George Muller once said that the only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. From his own experience, he says, I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testings. All aboard, Jesus and his disciples set out. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, what was the boat like? That's the kind of question that I always ask when I come to a text like this. Of course, we don't really know. But back in 1986, a fishing boat was discovered on the seabed of Lake Galilee. It was an unusually low tide, and they excavated this particular boat. They dated it back roughly to round about the time when Jesus lived, and those with a flair for tourism, as they do, quickly dubbed it the Jesus Boat. Quite unlikely that Jesus actually ever used this boat, but it was about 27 feet long, 8 feet wide, nearly 5 feet high. could hold about 15 people. It was probably a boat something like this that Jesus and the Twelve set out in. And we might imagine that the disciples were expecting a quiet night. No sweat, they thought. But they were in for a surprise. For after escaping the crowds, we next see them encountering the storm. A furious squall came up, says Mark, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Even today, if you go to the western shores of Lake Galilee, some of the car parks there, you'll see that some of them have signs warning drivers about where they park their car. Sometimes there can be high winds and waves that can literally swamp the cars which they think are parked on a safe beach. Lake Galilee is famed for storms. It's partly to do with its location. It lies roughly 700 feet below sea level. Yet the highest of the surrounding hills towers to nearly 1,400 feet above the level of the sea. I'm no weather expert, but I know that's bad news. Leads to bad weather conditions. Often sudden and fierce. And this storm was a case in point. In Matthew's Gospel, who 
Matthew also records this. Matthew says, it was like an earthquake. No wonder the disciples panicked. We can picture them shouting to each other over the noise of the wind and the waves. We can imagine some of them perhaps bailing out water because Mark tells us the boat was nearly filled. We can imagine some straining on oars. And perhaps they come to their wit's end. They think all hope is lost. And they go to look for Jesus. And they don't find Jesus the way that they expect to find him. As so often we don't. For he is not straining on an oar, but he is in the stern, the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. Now this story is full of ironies. And don't miss the irony here that this is the singular reference in the New Testament to Jesus' sleep life. This is it. This is the bit where he sleeps. Presumably he slept at other times, but it's just not mentioned. Now I often say that I could sleep through just about anything, but I don't think I could have slept through this. What does Jesus' sleep teach us? Well, perhaps his sleep, as some have suggested, shows us something of his confidence in God. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 4, verse 8. More obviously, his sleeping tells us something of his humanity. Whatever else Jesus was, He was human. He was like us in his physical constitution. When he worked hard, he got tired. If he walked a long way, like we read in John chapter 4, he needed to take a seat and take a drink and have a rest. And he had spent himself teaching. And so now he needs to sleep. Now, I don't think it's too marginal to take from this that sometimes the most spiritual thing we must do is get a good night's rest. There is certainly no biblical virtue in sleeplessness for sleeplessness' sake. And certainly not complete burnout. We know that when we're physically vulnerable, we're often spiritually vulnerable and physically vulnerable too. Even Jesus took a nap. Yet this sleep was about to be interrupted. For quickly, the disciples woke him. Now, this storm must have been really bad. Think about this. Here's a group of sea-fearing men who are waking the expert in woodwork, looking for tips about how to ride out a storm. Really, this was desperation. And quickly it became accusation too, for they blurt out a question, an unfortunate question. Teacher, don't you care if we drown or literally perish? You may know that this story is also told in two other Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Interesting, when you read them in Matthew, at this point, the disciples say a sort of prayer. In Luke's Gospel, they make a sort of a statement which implies that they need help. 
But here in Mark, we get a first-hand account of something that the disciples actually said. And it doesn't paint the disciples well. They are full of doubt about Jesus. Notice the two things that they doubt. First of all, they doubt Jesus' care for them. Don't you care if we drown? Aren't you concerned for us? Jesus, do you not love us? If they thought about it, and perhaps in retrospect, maybe they realized this was a misguided question. It was a cruel question. It was wrong. Why did they think he was in the boat? Why did they think he was in the world? Was it not because of his love and care? It must have hurt. Soon he would go to the cross to bleed and die for these men. And they ask, do you care? What doubt? And yet, if we're honest, sometimes we ask that question too. Perhaps you're asking it now. Tends to happen, although not exclusively, in dark moments, difficult times. The gales are blowing, and I know I've asked it, or at least felt it. And we need to be reminded that he does. And that feelings and facts are not always the same. Billy Graham, the world-known evangelist, once wrote to his mother, as he did frequently, from Bible college, no less. And this is what he wrote. I know that I've been converted. I know that I know Jesus Christ. But I've lost my feeling. I can't seem to get anywhere in prayer. And she wrote back, Son, God is testing you. He tells us to walk not by feeling, but by faith. And when you don't feel anything, God may be closer to you than ever before. Sometimes we don't feel as if God cares, but it does not mean he does not. They also doubted his word. They doubted his word. Didn't Jesus say that they would go over to the other side? Wasn't that his word in verse 35? Why then did they think it was possible that they would perish? Do the words of Christ ever pass away? Does he ever lie? Is he ever proved wrong in what he says? Does he ever go back on his word? Yet they doubted. They doubted his word. And again, sometimes if we're honest, we doubt it too. Again, it can be in the difficult moments. When the sun's shining, it's not so difficult to trust in God's word. And in those tough times, the promises of God don't seem so immovable. And we hear a voice in our ear, a lying voice, which says, did God really say? Do you want to know the bitterest irony of it all? If you know the latest story, you remember that Jesus took some of his followers to a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus is just hours away from the cross. 
He can appreciate to some degree the horrors that await him, the wrath of God, God's condemnation. And the Bible tells us he sweat like drops of blood. And in his hour of terror, the disciples sleep. And he begged them to watch and pray. Oh, God's grace, that he didn't treat his disciples as they deserved, his accusing disciples. And he rises and he shows them who he is. He shows them more of his greatness so that they may understand the folly of their questions. He rises up and he faces the storm and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And right then, the wind died down and it was completely calm. What a miracle. Now I don't need to tell you that many people today have trouble believing in miracles. Even so-called religious people. One writer, a guy that I read, suggests that Jesus didn't actually speak to the storm, to the sea. He cried out, oh, what a dreadful storm. It must be over soon. And the disciples mistakenly tied together Jesus' words and the fact that the storm just happened to subside. I find that harder to believe than the miracle. The disciples were in no doubt. This was no coincidence. And understandably, they had many questions to ask and to be answered. And so, after encountering this storm, we see Jesus and the disciples evaluating the outcome. What we now have is a sort of cross-examination. First, Jesus questions his disciples, and then the disciples ask questions about Jesus. Jesus, imagine this, turns from the elements, and with the same voice with which he has just quelled a storm, he speaks to his disciples. That must have been scary. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? These might seem like quite unusual questions to ask. We might say, of course they were afraid. They were in the middle of a storm and they thought they were going to die. But here's what I think the key to this is. We understand the fear question in light of the faith question. See, the key question is the second one. Do you still have no faith? Now, Jesus isn't speaking here of a sort of general faith. Like today, when people talk about belief and spirituality in some vague higher power. He's asking them why they still have no faith in him. You see, that's what really counts in this age of pluralism. Not what people believe in general, but what they believe about Jesus. It wasn't a new question for the disciples. Do you notice the key word in the question? Do you still have no faith? See, we're only at Mark chapter 4, but Jesus has already done so much to show that he is worthy of their faith. 
John the Baptist, you remember him from chapter 1? Proclaimed Jesus as the coming Messiah. And then you remember that Jesus was publicly recognized by his Father as his Son in whom he was well pleased. This is Jesus who had healed the sick, who had driven out evil spirits, who had made a paralytic walk. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the teacher who teaches not as other men, but with authority. He's even claimed to have the power to forgive sins. Something only God can do. They had mountains of evidence on which to take a stand. And this is why Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. After all this, they still hadn't got it. And sometimes we don't get it. Still living in unbelief. And this can be us. We can be afraid to commit. Jesus says to you perhaps this morning, after many sermons, many occasions when I've spoken clearly to you, shown you who I am, do you still have no faith in me? It's a wonderful faith. It's a faith to be commended because it's a faith which drives out fear. See, that's why Jesus rebukes them for being so afraid. For if they had believed in him, they needn't have been so frightened. It was an unnecessary level of fear. And some people do this. They choose to live their lives in the stranglehold of fear rather than trust in Jesus. Worrying about the future, fretting about the present, unhappy about the past. And for some of us, the problem is we have never put our faith in him. Or perhaps if we've come to faith in the past, we've forgotten what it is to trust God in our lives. And we are relying on our own resources. We can have the kind of confidence that Paul had when he said, In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, Psalms included. None of these things, he says, shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now that is the voice of fearless faith. Do we have that? The disciples didn't, not yet. They'd been afraid of the storm, and now Mark tells us that they are terrified in the presence of Jesus. The storm was bad, but this is worse. And they ask a question to each other, I think. Who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Like any true miracle, this miracle points to God. It wasn't self-advertising. It was saviour-exalting. They didn't focus on the power of the calm storm, but on the person who wielded the power. And they asked the most important question of all. 
The question that unlocks the door to faith. Who is this? Who is Jesus? I wonder if they thought about the story of Jonah. Did they remember that in the story it was God who calmed the storm? Maybe the story of the Exodus and the parting of the sea. Did they remember that it was God who delivered his people? That God alone controls nature? Yet the implications must have seemed too vast to take in. And they couldn't answer even their own question. The sense in the original is that they asked repeatedly, Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? But they couldn't answer. And it's only beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus that they would truly understand who he was and be able to proclaim, God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 Who is Jesus? That's what Mark's Gospel is all about. That's what life is all about. Answering this question. Responding to it. Perhaps You've heard it today for the very first time. You've asked it for the first time. Maybe for the upteenth time. It's a question we must answer in either faith, trust, or unbelief. The evidence is that here's one who is Lord over nature, doing God-like things. Here is the one who is worthy of our trust. A saviour whose word is sure, whose care is constant, who not only saves people from storms, but saves them from sins. Jesus the saviour is nothing like Jonah the sinner. Jonah was a rebellious runaway, like us, like me running away from God's plan, turning to his own way. But Jesus came to rescue us from all of that and bring us back to God by his own death where he paid the price, the penalty for our sins. He took our condemnation on himself. But will we trust him? What will Jesus have to do for us to believe What will it take for us to know that Jesus is God and will protect us even through death and storms? Let's pray.